0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: Hey there, my name is Hannah, and I am currently in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, getting ready to visit Wisconsin's high Cliff State Park. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey, you short waivers, Emily
2: Kwong here. Today, we're joined by Gabriel Spitzer, our senior editor, based out in Seattle. Hello, Gabriel.
3: Hey, Emily. I have a little game for us today. I've brought some sound, and I want you to try and guess what it is.
2: Okay. Whoa, that's um, that's kind of cool. It's like raindrops playing the drums. You know, landing oh. on like boom, 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 like a like a like an army is coming.
3: I like it. <laughs> To me, it sounds like a kind of like a choo-choo, but um, it's actually neither of those things. What you're hearing is a bunch of little earthquakes that are happening underneath a volcano. Uh, And in this case, it's Mount St. Helens in in Washington State. It's not what you would hear if you were there and put your ear to the ground. It's seismic data that's collected from these seismometers. And then you can take those seismic waves and speed them up to the frequencies where human beings can hear them. So that's what this is. It's like 15 minutes of data squished down to about seven seconds. (laughs) That's cool. Want to hear another one? Yeah. Okay. This one's my favorite.
2: Ooh, it's like a banshee. Oh, it sounds like a balloon just got into a car crash.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the researchers call this a volcanic scream. Uh, and This happened at Mount Redoubt in Alaska in, in 2009. And again, it's just a swarm of little earthquakes preceding a big eruption.
2: So are scientists just out there making sounds for fun, making mixed tracks? What is this?
3: It is kind of for fun. I mean, the audible version of this is mostly for non-scientists, but the data itself that it's based on is really, really important. So I talked to this volcanologist named John Major. He is the chief scientist at the U.S. Geological Survey Cascades Volcano Observatory here in Washington. Mm -hmm. And he said that this is like the, the language of the volcanoes. And if you want to know what they're going to do, you need to learn to speak it.
4: They're chattering all the time. That's just typical background, normal activity. Then... When we can get our earliest possible detection of things that are abnormal, then that allows us to prevent volcanic eruptions from really becoming volcanic disasters.
3: So more data is better, but there's a catch in this case, and that's that a lot of the volcanoes in the U.S. are on protected lands, and that can sometimes bring the scientists into conflict with conservationists.
2: We're doing a bunch of stories this summer on science in public lands, and today tug-of-war over a particular sleeping giant in the Pacific Northwest. I'm Emily Kwong.
3: I'm Gabriel Spitzer.
2: And you're listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR.
4: This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon.
2: All right, Gabriel. Uh, You live in Seattle and you're kind of in volcano territory. There's a ton in your area, right?
3: Yeah, there's a whole string of them that go from Northern California up through Canada. And I I can actually see the tallest one in the lower 48 from the end of my block. It's um, Mount Rainier and it's uh, potentially one of the most dangerous.
2: Does living near all these active volcanoes ever concern you? Uh,
3: It's not like a huge worry for a lot of folks out here, especially in in Seattle. We're far enough away that it wouldn't necessarily be a direct threat, but it's a real hazard for a lot of communities around here. And that's something that we saw in spades in 1980. That's when Mount St. Helens erupted and killed 57 people. John Major, that volcanologist we heard a minute ago, he actually started working in this region at Mount St. Helens in the early 80s, just a little bit after the
4: eruption in the blink of an eye, in the span of two or three minutes, that something like 200 square miles was just instantly knocked over. (laughs) And the whole landscape had been scoured right down to the bedrock. The soil was gone, the trees were gone.
2: Yeah, life can change in an instant when you live close to a volcano. And it's just a stark reminder of how powerful they are.
3: Yeah, exactly. And so after that Mount St. Helens eruption, you know, the scientists, they really stepped up their their research and their monitoring, and and they started putting monitoring stations at some of the most potentially hazardous volcanoes, including Mount Rainier and Mount St. Helens and others. And they've made a ton of progress on a lot of these volcanoes, Uh but not quite on all of them.
4: Right now, there's only one seismometer on Glacier Peak. It has a history of explosive eruptions. There are communities downstream potentially at threat. Mm. And with one seismometer, it doesn't give us enough uh, Mm. capability to be able to detect the earliest possible signs of unrest at that volcano.
2: Tell me about Glacier Peak. I don't know if I've ever heard of it.
3: Yeah, Glacier Peak is this 10,500-foot-tall mountain that To me, just kind of looks like a big scoop of vanilla ice cream kind of plopped Mm. into the middle of the North Cascade Mountains. It's pretty remote, but there are some small communities out there.
2: Sounds stunning to look at, but probably a little scary to live near. If it did erupt, what would happen?
3: One of the biggest hazards from the Cascades volcanoes are something called lahars, mm-hmm. and that comes from these volcanoes being covered in glacier ice and snow, and And when an eruption happens, that stuff can liquefy almost instantaneously, and it Ooh. brings down tons of mud and boulders and rocks and stuff, and like funnels down into the river valleys below the mountain, and so any community that's living on one of those rivers is potentially at risk. So, Glacier Peak has not done this in like 300 years, but… It's still one of the most active volcanoes in the Cascades.
1: So
2: if it's so active, why is there only one monitoring station?
3: The USGS applied in 2018 to put four more of them Mm. out there and to renovate the one that's there now. But the trick is that the national forest land that this mountain is sitting on is protected wilderness.
2: Ah. Wilderness... It's a legal term. It's these tracts of land that have been protected since the 1964 Wilderness Act. And there's lots of rules for what you can do there.
3: Exactly. There's lots of things that you are not allowed to do there. You can't put any permanent buildings there. You can't bring machinery into the wilderness area to the point where people like clearing trail, they have to use handsaws. They can't even bring chainsaws in. Mm. And these seismic stations, they're not huge, but they do have a shack, a 10 by 10 shack and, and big solar panels. And all that stuff has to be airdropped in from a helicopter.
4: Both activities, the permanent installations, and the helicopter use, are prohibited by the 1964 Wilderness Act. That's Kevin Preschel.
3: He's conservation director for the nonprofit wilderness advocacy group Wilderness Watch, and they filed objections to the USGS plans to put more monitors on Glacier Peak. And he says that would violate
4: the letter of the law. Mm. Congress set aside wilderness areas to be in contrast with other public lands. In other words, to be wild undeveloped unmotorized and having these n- new installations will will just degrade the wild character of of the wilderness area
2: okay i hear the concern is there any other way we can keep an eye on these volcanoes
3: yeah, Wilderness Watch argues that there there are ways to do that, that you can use things like ground-penetrating radar and, and that you could put seismic stations just outside the wilderness boundaries. But the scientists say that that isn't enough. It wouldn't let them get the earliest possible warning. Oh. And then as far as the helicopters go, I mean, it could be really disruptive to somebody who's trying to enjoy the solitude of the wilderness. And Kevin says when you do need to haul in equipment, you really just need to hike it in.
2: No. <laughs> To put up one of these stations. Yeah. Uh, so how much stuff are we talking?
3: Well, I had the same question. I called up uh, somebody who does this work. Rebecca Kramer is a geophysicist with the Cascades Volcano Observatory. And she described field work like this.
1: There are stinging nettles. There are tripping hazards. There are just all sorts of things that want to want to break your ankle. And the batteries that we use for these sites uh, weigh about 70 pounds apiece.
3: And those 70-pound batteries, there could be like 10 of them per station. Each station can have as much as 2,000 pounds of gear, and it's like a two-day hike to get to the site. So it's just, it's not practical to hike them in.
2: All right. I see some of the drawbacks to putting up one of these stations. Um, Can one suffice just having one on Glacier
3: Peak? Well, it's a really good question, and that's one of the points that the conservationists make. But I mean, the, the scientists say it's not enough. It's not... Uh, high enough resolution because you're you're looking for something in three dimensional space. You're looking for where these earthquakes are underneath the mountain, where they're moving, that kind of stuff. And to get a really good picture of what's happening under the earth, you you kind of need an array of these things.
1: If you and I are standing on opposite flanks of a volcano, and there's an earthquake, say you feel it two seconds later, and you give me a call, and you're like, "Hey, there's an earthquake." Maybe I don't feel it till ten seconds later. So knowing that it took 10 seconds to get to me, you can start to say, okay, well, it couldn't have come from here, here, here. We start to narrow down the location and, you know, we can get a lot of information with three, but four is really what we consider our minimum.
3: So the Wilderness Act does have some provisions for, for protecting public safety. And honestly, this is just like a tension that happens all over the place on protected lands, this trade-off between science and conservation, and so in this case it just it comes down to whether the data about what's happening underground is is worth the marks that you leave up above ground. And John Major, that volcanologist says, those marks are pretty light.
4: We're very sensitive to the fact that we're putting some of this instrumentation in areas that people consider sacred, but the impact that we have on the wilderness is really very small. So they kind of won their case because just this
3: summer, the Forest Service finally approved the application to add these four monitors to Glacier Peak. So next summer, hmm. they'll hike in still, the choppers just bring gear, and they'll get to work.
2: And it sounds like they stand to learn a lot. Just going back to the volcano chatter you mentioned at the beginning, I love that metaphor, how how each volcano kind of has its own way of speaking. This is going to be like one big wiretap on Glacier Peak's gossip.
3: Yeah, totally, totally.
2: And. How does this affect how you feel about Mount Rainier, just knowing this science is in motion?
3: Um, You know, it does comfort me in some way that these things aren't just like black boxes that are totally unpredictable. I mean, I like to think about, you know, learning their language. Rebecca Kramer, the the field scientist that I talked to, she said that for her, there's just something visceral about these gigantic forces that are at work just below the surface.
1: How just massive compared to anything we can comprehend and yet we have tools that let us start to get a picture of it and so we get these windows into this huge planet under our feet and all its crazy processes and it becomes less terrifying and more beautiful. Gabriel, thank
2: you so much for bringing us this reporting and telling us about the volcanoes in your backyard. Very much my pleasure, Emily. And for you, Short Waiver, keep checking your feed every Friday this summer for more stories about science and public lands. And you can see pictures of Glacier Peak from this episode at our website at npr.org. This volcanic explosion was produced by Burley McCoy, edited by Rebecca Ramirez, and fact-checked by Rachel Carlson. The audio engineer was Natasha Branch. Giselle Grayson is our Senior Supervising Editor, Beth Donovan is our Senior Director, and Anya Grundman is our Senior Vice President of Programming. I'm Emily Kwong. Thank you for listening to Shortwave, the Daily Science Podcast from NPR.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR.